I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 7th, 2018. Coming up, we learn about dogs for diabetics, how our canine companions can help us discover secrets about our health. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In the early morning hours this Saturday, August 11th, NASA plans to launch the Parker Solar Probe, described as NASA's first mission to touch the sun. But what does that mean? The spacecraft will fly closer to the sun's surface than any spacecraft before it, facing brutal heat and radiation. So why doesn't the spacecraft melt. Well, it is designed with a cutting-edge technology 8-foot diameter heat shield made of carbon composite and foam that will withstand the expected temperatures of over 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit on the sun-facing side, while keeping the spacecraft and scientific instruments on the backside at a relatively cool 85 degrees Fahrenheit, which is cooler than many of the recent days we've had here in Boulder. The Parker Solar Probe will be the first spacecraft to fly directly through the sun's corona. That's the part of the solar atmosphere visible during an eclipse. And it will answer questions about solar physics that have puzzled scientists for decades. Gathering information about fundamental processes near the sun can help improve our understanding of how our solar system's star changes the space environment, where space weather can affect astronauts, interfere with satellite orbits, or damage spacecraft electronics. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Dogs have an incredible sense of smell. It's so good that people can train dogs to sniff, well, sniff out everything from illegal drugs and explosives to lost people and even computer thumbnail drives that maybe someone is trying to sneak into a high security building so they can sneak out information. So how about dogs sniffing something life-saving, such as a dangerous drop in blood sugars for an insulin-injecting diabetic. For a healthy person, the amount of sugar in the entire bloodstream at any time is roughly about one teaspoon. That's one teaspoon of sugar in around five liters of blood. That's it. 
For most people, the body's own insulin production keeps blood sugars in a relatively healthy range, with the pancreas adjusting insulin levels in minuscule amounts to keep blood sugars in balance. For a diabetic who injects insulin, the injection itself can end up putting too much or too little insulin into the body, and this is especially dangerous when it forces blood sugar levels to go far lower than they normally would. Modern technology is reducing the risk somewhat. Continuous blood glucose monitoring devices do help. Even these have a lag time, since sometimes a diabetic's blood sugar levels can change dramatically in just 30 minutes. There's still risk. But now there are new blood sugar monitors. They don't require batteries. They're very friendly. They have incredible noses and they come equipped with wagging tails. Up next, we talk about dogs for diabetics. Shelley Schlender for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. This will be a story about dogs that can use their incredible sense of smell to sniff out whether or not someone has a high or low blood sugar. We'll get to the dogs in another minute, but first, the reason I know about these dogs is that I'm a diabetic. I was diagnosed 15 years ago. The endocrinologist said my body couldn't produce enough insulin. He said I had a very weak pancreas, and at some point I would have to start injecting insulin. Fortunately for me, instead of following the high-carb diet recommended by the American Diabetes Association, for the last 15 years I followed a high-fat, low-carb, adequate-protein diet. It's the same diet that my How on Earth colleague Beth Bennett has discussed a lot recently for its benefits for reducing things like cancer. In my case, on this diet... My blood sugars are normal, I'm healthy, and I'm not injecting insulin. Still, it's a dietary approach that often gets criticized by conventional medical professionals. So I like to go to gatherings where other healthy, smart people are doing the same thing as me. In good, in good shape. If I just watch my diet, I'm okay. It was at a meeting of the Boulder Low Carb Diabetes Forum that I met my first diabetes-sniffing dog, a big, friendly golden retriever whose guardian is Denver resident Sarah Cohen. So how he does that, I have no idea. <laughs> well, he's, not, he's not smelling blood. He's picking up your acetone in your breath. It's, you Sarah know, Cohen I, I is a triathlete, plus she's a registered dietitian nutritionist who's on the clinical team for the national group called Verda Health. They coach people in how to use low-carb, high-fat diets to reverse diseases such as diabetes. Here's Sarah at the meeting talking about what she's discovered about her own type 1 diabetes on a low-carb, high-fat diet. I definitely feel like I'm getting neuroprotective benefits from having circulating ketones because I... Where, like a 50 blood sugar for me, I used to get very shaky, I would get sweaty, I would want to eat everything in the fridge. Um, now I'm, I can continue working. And the typical diabetic is told they're in danger if their blood sugars go below 80. They're told they can get shaky otherwise. Their judgment can get wonky. They can go into a coma. Because of how Sarah eats, she's insulin sensitive. Plus her body uses a non-sugar nutrient, a fatty acid called a ketone, that helps her be just fine 
even with a lower blood sugar. You know, even if I am 50, I'm probably not going to move much from there because there's just not the amount of insulin to drop me severely low anymore. Um, and also, I just I don't get those neuro symptoms that I used to get of the shaky and the sweaty and the wanting to eat everything. Like I feel perfectly fine and I know how much I've done all the tests of, you know, how much one gram of glucose raises you. I know one gram raises me six points so I can do the math and I just eat what I need to eat, come back up to a nice level and move on with my day. So um, it just doesn't affect my life like it used to um, when I do have hypoglycemia. Sarah herself was interesting, but equally interesting was the dog at her feet a big golden retriever. Sarah said her dog was a little worried because some of the people at this meeting do not control their blood sugars as much as Sarah does. Here is the first time I really noticed how how aware he is of other people because he's this is he's very anxious. Usually he will be like you guys saw in the beginning. He will just go on his side and sleep. Stuff he's looking around the room. Yeah, yeah. He is very today. alert to what is going yeah. on with all of us. And I've never been in a group with this many people with diabetes all at one time. I've yeah. maybe been with one other person. So yeah, it's very interesting to me how like you can just, he's just on, he is on alert for sure. Other people in the room at this Boulder low-carb diabetes meeting had somewhat higher blood sugars due to a break in their high-fat, low-carb routine where they ate a high-carb breakfast bagel or a banana or who knows what else. My glucose was at 206 before I ate it, and one hour later was 226. Later, I'm 228. Even by American Diabetes Association standards, a blood sugar above 200 is pretty high and damaging to the body's nerves, the blood vessels, all kinds of things. Sarah said her dog really does smell blood sugars, and in fact, he smells them faster than her special continuous blood sugar monitoring yeah, devices. Like he, and he beats the CGM. He will alert me. Like, if I'm dropping, he can tell if I'm dropping or spiking. So even if the CGM doesn't have an arrow, um, he knows. And so I'll check sometimes, and I might be in the 110, 115, and I think I'm great. And then half hour later, I'm 50 and he can tell that that drop. And also the other way, if I'm 100 and he's alerting, and I'm like, but he's just adamant like he has been today, um, you know, 30 minutes later I might be 130, 140, um, and he knew that it was going up. All this talk about blood sugars and monitors, by the way, is very important for a full-fledged insulin-injecting diabetic. Diabetics who use insulin to control their blood sugars can sometimes end up with a very low reading that, if left untreated, can lead to death. So checking blood sugars frequently and injecting just enough insulin, but not too much, is critical for someone whose pancreas doesn't produce insulin anymore. Mostly that checking is done with gadgets. But seeing Sarah's special dog there with her, it led me to wonder about these non-machine blood sugar monitors. After all, dogs don't require batteries, and they come equipped with that powerful sense of smell and devotion. All this is why I ended up in a crowded meeting room in Concord, California. Here in that room, dozens of people were petting and playing with friendly dogs that come with an extra benefit. These are all dogs for diabetics. They're trained to smell dangerous changes in blood sugar, then alert their owners. I love my dog. <laughs> it cost around $50,000 for the organization to train each dog. But for diabetics who qualify, the dogs are free. Hey, Sheila. Hey, Sheila. As a fourth-grade diabetic yeah. named Kate, petted a friendly golden retriever. She said she loves this program 
This is awesome. I can get a dog to help with my diabetes. Good boy. Dennis McGrath-Wagner is an insulin-injecting diabetic who says that despite all the modern devices he uses for detecting low blood sugars, it was his Labrador retriever who saved him from a low blood sugar that could have left him in a diabetic coma. Yancey does not bark, but the first time he ever barked, every time I lost consciousness, he would bark to get me awake. So he tried to wake me up, which he never barked before. And, and it was just amazing how he knew what to do and what to do to help. They said to us, the doctor, if he didn't wake you up, you would not have been made it. That's when you go unconscious. That's when people don't wake up. They call it the dead in bed syndrome. Mark Rufenacht is the founder of Dogs for Diabetics. He's a type 1 diabetic. I am, yes. And I have been for um, 27 years, somewhere in there. He's an expert on how to measure things. I mean, a major expert. My background is in uh, measurement science, and I work specifically in some forensic applications. Back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I was working in and researching some breathalyzer technology. Rufinak got the idea for Dogs for Diabetics when he was training a puppy to help people who are blind, and he suffered a nearly deadly low blood sugar. It's very dangerous. You basically go through the symptoms and signs of being intoxicated, and then your judgment starts to fail. So you start making bad decisions. For me, when I have a low blood sugar, I just want to sleep, which is absolutely the worst thing to do because the sugar will continue to drop um, while you're sleeping, and that's when you go unconscious. And more than likely, I had a seizure uh, from the low blood sugar, and the dog was somewhat alerted to that seizure. The dog had no training in diabetes, none whatsoever. The dog liked me. He stuck with me, and I was able to get my blood sugar up. So really, that piece was, what can a dog do for a diabetic? And so over the next five years, I did a lot of research. I self-funded some research and um, study, and I worked with some health professionals as well as some, some dog people, and, and we really tried to figure out and prove a hypothesis that I had come up with. Uh, so the hypothesis was, can a dog smell hypoglycemia or low blood sugar? Is there a smell associated on the breath with a low blood sugar? And so working in the breathalyzer technology, that's where I had a little bit of a question going through my mind, kind of wondering the, these things. And the other thing that on, the, on, the, on my professional side, on the forensic side, I mentioned that when you have a low blood sugar, your signs and symptoms can be similar to impairment or intoxication. So occasionally a diabetic was actually put into a holding cell and they would die in that holding cell overnight because there was not a differentiation with the breathalyzer technology at the time. And those stories are very uncommon now, but they were more common 20 years ago. Oh, 20 years ago when somebody was acting erratic, they couldn't follow a straight line on the highway right. with the walk test. They were assumed to be drunk, and in some cases it was someone having a low blood sugar and in danger of dying. Correct. And then they would be put in a holding cell, and oftentimes they did die during the night. And again, that's rare these days, although I heard a case about six months ago on that. So uh, there's not a method of measuring sugar in breath right now. What I had to figure out is, um, is there a smell? Now, I knew going into this that there was a smell for high blood sugar. It is actually a smell like juicy fruit gum, and you can smell it on the breath of the diabetic. 
So that was part of my hypothesis is, okay, I know there's a smell for high blood sugar. In other words, there's way too much sugar in the body. And so you're exhaling these sugar smells, which is the juicy fruit gum smell. What we do know, which is not a whole lot, but what we do know from some good research that Roche Pharmaceutical did with us, is that what the dogs are smelling is actually a, a chemical coming out of the liver. So as the blood sugar drops, and it's also dependent on the rate of drop, the liver starts telling the body, or the body starts telling the liver, look, we got a problem here with blood sugar. It's dropping, so we should go into kind of a safety mode or a starvation mode um, to preserve the sugars that are in the body. So let's try to slow down this drop. So this chemical is emitted from the liver, and the dogs are smelling that chemical from the liver. Now, I can't tell you the name of the chemical. It's spelled something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Um, and they also didn't spend the additional million dollars to break it down further than just the information that we got. Um, we do know that there's some acetone in there. When I have talked to, for example, coroners, they've told me that when they've been doing a postmortem on a diabetic that has died from hypoglycemia, that there's actually a smell that they can smell. It's an acetonish type of smell. And we did a lot of testing with acetone. Dogs had zero recognition with it. We know that that's not the chemical that they're, that they're working off of. We don't know exactly what they're working off of. Um, we also know with some, a little bit of work that we've done, they're working off some um, cortisol as well too. So the, the body starts producing the cortisol under stressed conditions, whether those are mentally stressed or physical stress. And so the cortisol works in there as well too. Um, the first dog that we worked with came from Guide Dogs for the Blind, and his name was Armstrong. He was a kind of a character. He was, had a very fun personality, and he loved to have fun and play games. And so really what we did is we took the smells off my body using some special breath tubes that we would collect the smell, and also some sweat. And we know that breath and sweat are essentially the same thing. Breath has a little bit, or excuse me, um, sweat has a little bit more delay to it than the breath does. And so we, we used these smells and we trained Armstrong on these smells. The first dog Rufinox ever trained is honored in the Guinness Book of World Records. Rufinock adds that his discoveries led to many business opportunities, which he turned down. Yes, so when, when I first made the discovery of the smell with the diabetes, there were people who offered me large sums of money to take this knowledge that I had figured out and to basically sell it to them, which I knew would mean it would be a buried project. I turned those opportunities down because I wanted this to become more open sourced. I knew that if other people could work on it, it's gonna grow and, and that too. Rufinock has made public both his training methods and how he verifies that a dog is reliable at detecting blood sugars. Absolutely, so we have very strict protocols and requirements that the dog must meet before we'll place the dog with a client. The dog is learning the scent at that point. And then the dog goes to the client and has to work with that client individually and say, okay, now I'm gonna be alerting on your scent at your workplace, in your home, in your bedroom, in the grocery store, at the doctor's office, or whatever. That's really a second whole phase of training the dog has to go through. So they go through that and they have to meet the same statistical reliability in that piece of it before we'll graduate them as a team. Our number one thing is we want our, 
our clients and our diabetics to be safe, number one. He says not all programs out there are rigorous in how they train their dogs, but the ones who follow his methods to the letter get excellent results. I don't know about all the groups. I know that some are reputable and some are less reputable in what they're doing. There's a number of groups or individual trainers who train high expense dogs. Um, the going price for one of these dogs is somewhere between eighteen and $25,000. Dogs for Diabetics, we provide all the dogs and our services free of charge. That said, here's what's the most important thing here. You're gonna place the dogs from our program with a child or an adult or whatever. I have spoken to people that have gotten dogs from other organizations and no names or anything. Like I said, there's some good ones and some less than good. The parent of the child will tell me well, the dog is 50-50. So 50% of the time, the dog is accurate. And I say, and how is that working for you? Okay, and they say, well, it's 50% more than what we had before in having the dog alert. But if you look at the statistics of it and the probabilities, the dog is doing nothing more than flipping a coin. So the dog knows nothing at 50-50. My vision of this is first, I'd like to see Dogs for Diabetics grow um, in our capacity um, throughout the West Coast and eventually the United States. Our model has been Guide Dogs for the Blind and Canine Companions for Independence. Those are two outstanding organizations that have, over the past 75 years, you know, moved into a national service provider. But I also would like to see this program grow in other countries and ensure that other diabetics also have the opportunity to do that, not necessarily under the auspices of our program, but certainly using the training techniques that we have, and most importantly, the statistical confidence to ensure that the dog is giving a reliable alert and not just flipping a coin. To demonstrate his methods, Rufinach brings out small jars containing swabs of sweat from a diabetic who did have low blood sugar. He says his sweat jar method for training diabetes alert dogs has been validated scientifically. To train dogs to avoid distracting smells, he uses jars with other scents. Such as peanut butter or dog food or eucalyptus. Rufinoff puts the smell-containing jars on a table nearby that asks an assistant to bring him his two personal diabetes-smelling dogs. In scampers a big yellow Labrador retriever and a smaller black Labrador retriever. Good girl, honey. Good girl. They wag their furry tails. But neither of these friendly dogs is interested in the jars of smells. Instead, both dogs hurry to Rufinacht. They put their paws on his lap, then balance on their back legs and put their front paws on his shoulders. They snuffle at his nose and mouth. They lick his face, and they keep it up. Actually, this is how they've been taught to let Rufinacht know that his blood sugars are dropping. However, just a few minutes before these dogs came in, Rufinacht had checked his blood sugars by using his state-of-the-art continuous blood glucose monitors. At that point, his blood sugars were normal. Now he decides that the dogs simply want to play. So now we're getting a little bit of attention wanting because uh, one dog is getting jealous of the other. As the dogs lick his face and put their paws on his shoulders, okay. he looks a bit embarrassed. All right, off, off. Sit. Reluctantly, but as good Sit. dogs do, they follow their master's orders and lie down at his feet. For the next 10 minutes or so, Rufinock continues to explain his training methods. Then suddenly... Disobey the command. Um, what, what's happening is my blood sugars are dropping. <laughs> 
Okay, and that's maybe why they were both alerting at the intensity that they were. Rufinock checks his continuous blood sugar monitors. Yes, so it's telling me a couple of things here. First off, it's telling me that it's falling rapidly. Now it's giving me a number of 83. The same meter that had shown a safe blood sugar level for him of 133 10 minutes ago when his dogs first alerted now shows a blood sugar of, of 83. That's a 50-point drop. Recall that the American Diabetes Association says that for most diabetics, a blood sugar below 80 is starting to get dangerous. Rufinox says that the dogs often notice dangerous blood sugar changes before his meters do. So in fact, what the dogs were doing was, was not attention-seeking. So they were both telling me that the blood sugar was dropping down. And I wondered, because Jessie was getting pretty intent on me, and she usually will take a smell and walk away. <laughs> do you need to do something right now? Um, let's wait a couple minutes. Let's, let's see what happens here. Did you plan this for this talk? I did not. In fact, I took some extra sugar before I came over um, because I don't like getting a low blood sugar during an interview. As he tells his dogs that they don't need to sit any longer, they rush up to him. They put their paws on his shoulders and sniff his face. This time, he tells them that they're good dogs for alerting him. And here I am getting a valid alert. Good girl. Good girl. So you can see how intense she is on me. And this is not just play now. She, she wants me to know that something is up. And you watch him. He will probably make some growling noises as uh, my blood sugar continues to drop down. Good girl. And normally at this point, I would give them a treat and... Yep, there's the grunting and the growling, and he's saying the same thing. This is persistence, okay? This is not just pressing a button on my phone and turning an alarm off. No, this is persistence. Good girl. Well, that's all for this story about dogs for diabetics, except for one more thing. Remember Sarah Coink, the Verde Health type 1 diabetic who trains people to eat a high-fat, low-carb diet? When I talked with Mark Rufinock, I had mentioned that Sarah has trained her dog to alert when her blood sugars are going below 60 rather than at the blood sugar 80 level that most of the dogs for diabetics are trained to alert about. That's because for Sarah on her low-carb, high-fat diet, blood sugars in the 60s are still basically a normal blood sugar. Now, Mark Rufinock had said that he thought that the dogs alerted on blood sugars partly because they're smelling something called ketones. That's a fatty acid that can occur in the blood. But Sarah's always in something called nutritional ketosis, meaning her body's always humming along, using fatty acids to help it do things more than it uses sugars. But her dog doesn't worry about that. So why does her dog alert when her blood sugars go down to 60? That's a mystery that still hasn't been solved. But there's a chance that Mark Rufinacht and Sarah Coink will meet, and Mark Rufinacht will get a little bit of Sarah's sweat and figure out just what it is that helps a dog like hers alert. For now, this has been my opportunity to talk about the science behind some wonderfully loyal dogs and how they're helping save lives and how they can sniff to tell what blood sugars are. I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. And thanks to Shelley for that report. We will post links to Verta Health and Dogs for Diabetics at our website. 
and send us a note if you'd like contact information for the Boulder Low Carb Diabetic Support Group. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Pink Floyd and the theme song from the Lassie TV show. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. This show is dedicated to Frida, a beautiful and happy dog who is loving and loved and greatly missed. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.